Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. Got a jam-packed show today. As big, always. Big episode. Yeah, this yeah. is even jammier, I Ooh, think. Ooh, delicious. Uh, Raspberry? Yeah. Well, My favorite. It, whatever, you know, it's the radio, so you can imagine. Uh, Jammy is one of those words anything. that food people use, uh, like wine people use, earthy or, uh, you know, acidic or tannic. Like, what does jammy mean when you're talking about, like, chicken or, or beef? Or like, oh, this steak is it's sort of a jammy mouthfeel. And you're like, what is that? What are you even trying to say? I'm sorry, I'm going on a very early rant. Usually, I delay my rants till yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. If, if if that was the rant uh, this early about the jam, who knows what we're in store <laughs> right. for later yeah. on? And uh, as for what everybody out there in uh, listening land is in store for, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, we love doing this, but we also love uh, getting feedback and reaching out to everybody. So uh, thanks to uh, loyal listeners. It's like they say when you get in the airlines, uh, you're sitting in your seat, and the stewardess says, yeah, "We know you have many choices." Yeah. For flying and not crashing. You have a lot of choices for legal podcasts. Very pretty. Yeah. It, it's, it, which actually reminds me of that wonderful Norm McDonald slash Sam Kinison joke. Norm McDonald told the joke uh, after Sam Kinison died. And this was before Norm died. So Norm's joke was uh, he used to fly all over Canada's small towns doing stand-up com- comedy gigs uh, with Sam Kinison. And so one of Sam's gags was that the two of them would be seated in this small plane that holds like 12, 15 people. And uh, the uh, captain would come on and he'd say, uh, hello, everybody. Uh, this is Captain Johnson. And then Sam Kinison nice. would start screaming, what? Johnson, no, not Crash Johnson, not Crash Johnson. <laughs> So lots of crazy things can happen up in the air, oh my God. but we're on the ground. Canadians. So uh, we're going to talk about, it's going to be a legal rewind, Connor, Ooh. the story of the most unqualified Supreme Court candidate in history, oh. Harriet Myers from oh. the George W. Bush here. We're just going to kind of revisit that, but we're also going to be more current. We're going to talk about whether to dump statutes of limitations for sex abuse cases. We're going to talk about whether justice was delivered in the Vanessa Bryant case, verdict just in, and we're going to explore how the rich and famous really do not like getting ripped off. And at the end of the episode, of course, America's favorite game show, Guess the Verdict. I'm going to confront you, Connor, with some real life facts. And you get to decide uh, who wins the outcome. And if you're right, uh, you get the big bell. Excited. Love the bell. Very exciting. All right. Before we get to uh, those big topics, a couple of just miscellaneous items that cropped up this week. Um, I wonder... I haven't seen this new show. Kevin can F himself. It's F asterisk asterisk K. AMC is marketing this heavily. I saw the first season. I loved it. Nice. The second season has dropped. So this is the spiritual successor to Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23? Yeah. And also Schitt's Creek. 
You there remember? we are. The yeah. I mean, I, well, I, what I has told, America come to? I told you I got into trouble on KBC Radio saying Shit's Creek right after it won an Emmy or something, and right, the, right, right. The board op goes nuts, right. and you know the the building explodes. If if you can call a TV show Shit's Creek, yeah, and Kevin can f two asterisks himself, yeah, I mean. Who are they kidding? You right. know, nine-year-old children are going to see that. They can read right. those words. Right. And they're going to fill in the blanks. They are. Yeah. So yeah. it's very... Is, are we close? I guess my question is, are we close to anything goes in terms of language? Is that a, is that a good thing? Because, you know, you turn on cable, it's it's pretty much 24-7. I would love... That's a, it's, a, it's a valid question about what we see in media and what, you know, how, how much we want to protect kids. I am a, not some sort of libertarian who says, let's see, uh, you know, Hustler and Playboy magazine, uh, billboards, uh, you know, with with uh, with anything goes on on the on the road, if only uh, to maybe just avoid car accidents. But the <laughs> the the notion, you know, that that we we have to protect some people from some kind of media media uh, or you know children or that religious people's sensibilities are are at issue. I'm not a very sympathetic. Uh, ear when somebody says, "Oh, uh, I'm I'm a religious person and I don't want to see or hear this thing." You know, I, it, it, to me, I think that obviously free speech is important, and we need uh, to be able to write, you know, be Salman Rushdie and, and write the the satanic verses, right, and and not get mm-hmm. stabbed on stage as we've seen recently. Right, there, there are terrible uh, consequences for not holding free speech sacrosanct. On the other hand, of course, you do have uh, the the classic uh, problem of, to- of tolerance. How do you how do you create a society where you are intolerant of the intolerant, but only of the intolerant? And and that is is really really hard. I mean, you you gotta you gotta draw a line somewhere, and that means depending on the will of the masses, right? You gotta depend on on the the will of the people in terms of how uh, gross can you get on TV or how much free speech. Uh, should there really be in in society, period, political discourse uh, or on TV or whatever else. So when, you know, people are pushing the envelope, I honestly think it's a good thing because I think pushing the envelope, even just in like, you know, Kevin can go F himself on TV or whatever. I think that actually pushes the envelope and gets us talking about what's okay to talk about, what are off limits topics and why and how they can hurt people. And it might get people to realize, oh, I guess saying dirty words on television like George Carlin is not actually the sort of thing that people should take objection to, that that is a cloak that people wear to try to, uh, you know, keep, you know, speech civil in the public square. And we should really be thinking about what the impact of these words are. If the impact of the word is that somebody out there is hurt, right? If you say a slur and it's a racial slur or it's a slur against differently abled people or it's a slur against a different gender or something like that, we, we should be examining, oh, does that hurt somebody? But if you say Kevin could go F himself, unless Kevin's out there are offended by it and it hurts them personally and deeply and it's a truly a, a, you know deeply held belief for some reason uh, to call back our religious uh, Supreme Court justice language, um, you know, we should be asking why. Why is this off limits? So I think it's actually a, a great thing because it changes the conversation. People talk about it on podcasts. Well, uh, I'm here to tell you, uh, you got to check out season two of the AMC show uh, about Kevin, because the uh, number one was was terrific. By the way, uh, something you said about like a billboard along the street that would be rather explicit reminded me. I didn't 
I didn't tease the actual uh, uh, fact pattern of the guess the verdict uh, item you're going to guess. The uh, It's the case of the topless leaf raker. Okay. <laughs> the case of the topless leaf raker. That's all I'll say for now. We'll get to it okay. at the end of the episode. Okay. So uh, the other miscellaneous item that happened this week, uh, student debt relief, you know, part, oh, of, the, yeah. part of the big role. Holy Biden is cow. on. Uh, Democrats are celebrating. Oh, we're going to win the midterms after yeah. all. Yeah. But I think they're, you know, some people are a little uh, cranky about the fact that, you know, a lot of folks did the right thing for decades, paid their debts. And, you know, what do they chopped liver? And right. also the, the levels are pretty high. It's not just, you know, a homeless student, it's like couples earning a total of $250,000, they get relief. Should we really be spending $500 billion, which is what this is going to cost, in this inflationary era we're in on folks that are making 150, 200, 250 grand just to give them a little present and hope they vote for Democrats in November? So an individual person can make up to 125, and therefore a couple can make up to 250 and right. still receive relief because if your husband or wife makes money. They don't want to deny you the relief as long as you don't make too much money, right? right? So we can add up the numbers and get to 250 and say, oh my gosh, there's this super affluent couple. But the issue is that means testing, uh, the, the lower the means test, um, the fewer people get this relief, even though we live in a society where a massive number, an extremely wide swath of the population has been told their whole lives, hey, a college degree is the way that you enter the middle class. It's the way that you can call yourself a success. It's the way that you can be, you know, be accomplished and get that job that you want. Every job needs a college degree. And if there's a job out there that doesn't need a college degree, society looks down on it. It's scornful towards it. So what are, what are kids supposed to do, right? Well, this generation and maybe maybe the generation before it had grown up in a period where talk about inflation, the price of higher education has inflated so quickly as to be the percentages are not even measurable. They're not even reasonable, right? I mean, it used to cost $300 a year or whatever to go to college. I mean, when you went to UCLA in the 70s, in 1974, what, how much did a year of tuition cost? It was less than your rent, right? Like the rent was the more important it, thing. It, it was crazy low. It was about 50 bucks a quarter. Dear so, Lord. Yeah, I mean, that's 200 whole, bucks a whole, year. Whole year was 150 bucks. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, this of is- Of course, my Bel Air mansion. Oh my God. Of course. Gosh. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the gardener, <laughs> the security. And the butlers. And oh, the black helicopter. When your butler needs a butler, then you know you're financially in over your head. Absolutely. You've for done those, this to yourself. For those of you who don't know LA, geography, Bel Air is actually across the street from UCLA, literally yeah. across the street. But UCLA is in some pretty good real estate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I wish so, yeah, I'd lived there. Th this is an era where student loans were a way uh, we are suffering the consequences of student loans being um, this massive predatory scheme to get people into incredibly brutal and undischargeable loan agreements, unlike other arrangements. Uh, uh, loan arrangements where when you get a loan, you can discharge it in bankruptcy if things go wrong, terribly wrong. You get a loan to start a business and you start that business and you chug along for a couple of years and then there's a recession or whatever and things fail and you fail and you need a bankruptcy uh, proceeding to start over and you get to discharge that debt and pay them what they you know you can and you, your creditors all divide up what's left and then you get stuff protected. Like maybe you don't lose the house that you're living in or some portion of the equity of the house you're living in. You might be able to keep your car if you need to go to work or something like that. These are good systems that allow people to climb out of dangerous, terrible situations and preserve a middle class where people would be falling out of it if they couldn't declare bankruptcy. So that's usually a good system and it's a good idea to have. And guess what? You can't!
can't do it because they're so afraid that people will incur rack up a bunch of uh, debt to to pay for incredibly, unbelievably overpriced higher education. And then they'll come out and declare bankruptcy immediately. And then their earning potential will come in after the bankruptcy. And that's a danger, right? So it's undischargeable. So that created this horrible, perfect storm where students were preyed upon by lenders, both private and as a result, then the government handed out these grants, which were generous grants, but they do have incredibly long tails with huge amounts of interest Mm -hmm. where you've got people paying uh, people that I know, you know, take a $14,000 or $20,000 loan out. And then five, six years later, after school, they've got twenty, thirty, dollars or $40,000 in debt because of how the interest is. So you're occur. saying USC is kind of like your, your bookie or, or, your, uh, or your pimp? Yeah, exactly. I mean, wow. we, we turned higher education into an incredibly profitable venue, a, a venture for people because it's undischargeable, guaranteed debt that will follow these people likely until they die. And, you, and mo- tons of people die with student loans. And that is this massive weight on the economy. It's this huge weight on the economy. And a lot of people are saying, as you pointed out, hey, it's an inflationary period. Should we be handing out money in in effect by allowing people to spend more once they have fewer obligations? A lot of people will have no more debt because they discharge 20K if they had a Pell Grant or 10K if they didn't. Um, They might have no debt or much reduced debt, and Mm -hmm. they'll go out and spend a lot more, which will juice the economy. And the economy is too hot already. It's going to overheat. Well, we we when we're saying the economy is too hot already. And we need to cool it down. While it's true that we are, uh, you know, always worried about crises and crashes, at the same time, what we're saying is we would prefer to engineer the soft landing of our economy by depressing consumer spending, depressing individual spending power, depressing quality of lives of individual people. And not affecting the massive spending of corporations, which is, of course, a, a lot much larger portion of the inflationary pie. Now, obviously, consumer spending is a huge part of the American economy, but c- corporate spending is also gigantic. And we're not talking about how do we, you know, cut back on corporation spending and on you know everything else because. We're, we, we the way that we tweak the economy is we put our, our boot on the the uh, on the the neck of the American uh, worker and say, oh, you're making too much money. You've got too much spending power. Uh, you've got too much uh, leverage in the economy, and you're you're you know too willing to quit your job and move to a better one. Uh, we got to stop this. This is terrible. We got to get that unemployment rate up. I mean, it's the wrong way to go about fixing things. Well, so we I- can fix things to make the world better and the lives of American workers and the students and, and loan uh, loan holders better. And solve inflationary overheating in different ways, like by taxing corporations so that they don't spend so much, which is a bigger slice of the pie. You sound just like Robert Samuelson. (laughs) So I mentioned that this is a vote buying scheme, but actually I've gotten over that. I'm kind of okay with it because what's going to happen is all the students are going to have their debts forgiven and they're going to go down to Cancun and party. They're going to be too too drunk to vote and they're not going to vote for Biden after all. So I think it'll work out. Hey, when we come back... Legal Rewind, a quick report on the world's most unqualified Supreme Court candidate. Uh, Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. But first, Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe the podcast. Yeah, check us out on the podcast platform you prefer. That's probably Apple Podcasts, but it could be any, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever else, Podcast Addict. Uh, And while you're there, leave us a review. They've all got different reviews and rating systems and join, subscribe buttons, whatever. It's free. It might say subscribe and sound like you might have to pay. No. Push the button, you get the episodes pushed to your phone every single week, 
And as a result, you don't have to remember to pull them down. You always get the hot, fresh, too many lawyers that you're looking for. Uh, and we get a hot, fresh review and feel good about it. Unless it's a hot, fresh, steaming review, in which case uh, we don't want to see it. But uh, uh, you can just send it to me in a, in a Twitter DM. We'll be right back. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So, a little legal rewind. Uh, you remember the name Harriet Myers from the dim, distant legal past. Uh, back in uh, 2007, George W. Bush was president, and uh, he nominated Harriet for the U.S. Supreme Court, and it did not go well. Uh, she had been White House counsel to Bush for a couple of years. She was a big Republican. She was, uh, you know, prominent in the Texas uh, bar. She was president of the Bar Association. I think the first woman uh, uh, president of the Texas Bar Association. But she had not been a judge. And basically, she'd had some political offices, the White House staff secretary for a couple of years uh, and the deputy chief of staff. And so Bush somehow got the notion that she should be appointed to the Supreme Court because Sandra Day O'Connor was just retiring. And so Bush said to himself, hey, let's have a woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. But this woman uh, did not have judicial experience, did not have a distinguished record, but she checked the boxes. She was a loyal GOP staffer. She was conservative. She was female to replace Sandra Day O'Connor. Really irresponsible of Bush, don't you think, Connor, to, to just appoint somebody like that, checking the boxes without having somebody really mm, interesting, highly interesting, qualified interesting. wouldn't you wouldn't you agree with me on this i would say Couldn't we at least agree on this i would say i would say that different attitudes? it's hard to look into bush's brain and decide why he did this are and we I'm, heading for a bush's brain <laughs> joke here yeah. <laughs> insert your own joke here right? uh, 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 carl yeah. rove's title by the way uh, he was referred to as bush's, bush's brain. brain there we are um, I, yeah, it's hard to know. And frankly, I don't really care to look back at why an individual did what they did in that situation. I think it's more important to zoom out and say, like, what are the impacts of that? Or what's the system that allowed that to, ha to happen and go forward? Uh, was she uh, a qualified candidate? No, probably not. Probably uh, not. But I think she probably got a lot of unfair flack uh, because while maybe wildly unqualified, the the sexism of saying, oh, he was trying to appoint his secretary because people didn't really understand the word secretary, who had this important job in the White House, who is, as as you describe, uh, you know, the, the person controls the paper flow. Right. Besides yeah. what the president sees. Every Besides day. what the president yeah, she sees. She was not that, a, a secretary in the sense that she did type exactly filing, and right. that i think is what a lot of people seized on now i'll say this i was 11 when this happened so i didn't have my, <laughs> my finger on the pulse yeah no, you politics, know the details you know? Not, not too important we're, we're just talking right, broad exactly. brush here but and, uh, but but yeah i think it, it is an unfortunate uh reality that when a woman comes up uh for a supreme court justice uh position uh this sort of discourse started, you know, running around the media and people's water coolers. Yeah. Now, hopefully it would be different. Um, well, you know, it's funny. Know. It's funny you mentioned that now. You say, Interesting. Uh, it's funny. Interesting. There's something in the paper just this week. Yeah. Uh, Governor uh, Newsom 
Gavin Newsom has just uh, appointed somebody to the California Supreme Court. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You know, we were talking about legal history and now yeah. we've got a, yeah. a, a related look at the news this week. Yeah. Um, Governor Newsom has appointed Judge Kelly Evans to the California Supreme Court. Hmm. Now, she has. Uh, let's look at her background. Assistant public defender in the public defender's office back in 95. Oh, this is good. She was with the ACLU of nice. Northern California for three years in the 90s. Nice. She, attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. She was a couple of years as an associate with a, a law firm. And then she went back to the ACLU and so on. And then, oh, she was special assistant to the Attorney General of uh, California, the Democrat Xavier Becerra. Mm -hmm. And then she was uh, in the office of Governor Gavin Newsom. I, I don't know. It's, it's almost like it's a little analogous to the Harriet Meyer situation. Now, she was a judge for exactly one year on the Sacramento Superior Court. Oh, just or, like or, uh, or perhaps it was Amy Coney Barrett. Perhaps it was Alameda. Well, yeah. Amy Coney Barrett was the, at the appellate level. Oh, this yeah, is, totally the, different. Totally different. One year. Well, that gets you on the, uh, the U.S. You know, Supreme Court. When you, I guess my point is, if you're picking somebody for the California Supreme Court, right. ideally, it would be somebody that has appellate justice experience in California. I can remember back in the 60s and 70s, the California Supreme Court was the repository of super highly respected minds. Matthew Tabriner, mm -hmm. very left of center, but everybody really, I'm sure you read a bunch of his cases uh, in law school. But here's the deal about Kelly Evans. Mm -hmm. She is black. She is female. She is lesbian. She was the staff uh, attorney for the governor and the Democrat attorney general. Doesn't it seem like just as it was a bad idea to nominate Harriet Myers, we deserve somebody a little more qualified than a lady who was on the trial court bench for exactly one year and had a bunch of political positions. I mean, these are the seven most important lawyers, you know, to be judges in the entire state of California. We have 36 million people. Yeah. Wouldn't there be a better candidate? I think that that actually makes her a very good candidate. I think that those those uh, those pieces of her experience are very important. And those attributes that you mentioned, that she's black and a woman and gay, are also important, valuable things to have in a Supreme Court justice because those are historically underrepresented groups. I think that the notion that we should have some sort of person that fits the mold, if we think, well, who's going to be you know, the, the most qualified candidate, it is our inherent biases that assume that that person has no extra characteristics that we see as unusual. Yeah, but Connor, do you really think we need mainstream? more representation of various groups? Every single one of the seven justices in the California Supreme Court now have been appointed by Democrats. Right. We have a three-quarter majority in both the Assembly and the State Senate yes. of Democrats. Yeah. Every constitutional officer for more than a decade, from superintendent of public instruction to the governor and yeah. everybody, but everyone a Democrat. Do we need any more sensitivity to, to various groups? It's not sensitivity. It's representation. We well, need those people to be represented. I think it's a pretty good track record. I think if I were in any group, I'd feel pretty darn good about my representative. It'd be like I'm on trial and right. I look at the jury and oh my God, everybody is a clone of me. Yay, Royal, I'm going to maybe not be convicted. But today. minority you know, groups are not a monolith. Every different group does not look at the Supreme Court and say, oh, there's a gay black woman. Yeah, but woman, we've got quite a lot of I'm diversity. We've got 120 legislators. We've got about a dozen uh, constitutional officers yeah. and we have seven justices of the California and that's uh, great. Court. And we have roughly 75% of all of the appellate court of appeal justices in California mm -hmm. appointed by Democrat. Right. 
I mean, isn't it happy days are here again well, from the Democrats' standpoint? No, because the Democrats are... There's a, so much more to be done. The, corp, the, operation, the Democrats are largely a, a party of corporate shields anyway. So, no, this is barely a start at actually accomplishing positive progressive change and making things better. I mean, look at the, the situation we live in. We still live in a situation where we... Well, I mean, we live, in, we live in a police state, right? We imprison a higher percentage of black people in America than they did in apartheid South Africa during apartheid, right? So we live in a police state. It is a massively racist society. So, yes, every single inch that we can take back from that society is a good thing. Every single progressive we could put on the bench is a good thing. And the California Supreme Court, we might look at that and say, oh, the California Supreme Court is all Democrats. Probably secretly Democrats, even if they're not admitting it. Uh, They probably are. But I mean, that California Supreme Court is part of America, where they have to counterbalance, for example, that they have a 50th of the power, or maybe say a 20th of the power, or really it's more like a trillionth of the power of the U.S. Supreme Court, which is a conservative supermajority. Mm-hmm. So yeah, every single bit helps, absolutely, because well, we, we don't live, we, we're not a model. We we're just have a basic difference isolated. of opinion yeah. as to the nature of society. I, I guess from my perspective, I, I would be more comfortable with a governor picking somebody who is really among the very best qualified. Well, what says she's not? And Why wouldn't um, she be? I'm going, Don't those I'm things going to make ta- her qualified? I'm going to take my IRA uh-huh. and I'm going to go to Vegas nice. and I'm going to put it on this lady's not uh, one of the seven most qualified people in the state of California. I'm going to uh, give any odds to the to the uh, uh, casino think, there that I they think, want. I think that that trying to say who- maybe she's lucky, maybe, you know, just with her experience, somehow she's leapfrogged over people with, you know, IQs of 150 and decades of appellate experience and are yeah. very progressive. Yeah. But and I wouldn't bet. On I would say that uh, the, the notion that there is such a thing as the most qualified candidate and we visualize that that person in our head that they are an old white man in a, a, a black robe uh, with uh, a powdered wig from England uh, and a judge <laughs> who has written 10 million opinions and therefore has ascended to the, the level of Supreme Court. I think that's the wrong way to think of judge, judges. I think that we need to recognize that judges are a different kind of politician who enacts law and applies law in individual scenarios uh, in the same way that legislators write laws for individual scenarios often, although they often write laws of general application as well. Mm -hmm. We need to think of uh, our judges as our elected officials because they are appointed by our elected officials and they are the the tip of the spear in terms of applying uh, uh, the, the law to human beings and affecting their lives. And I think that the the notion that that we would say, well, we want some sort of zoomed out, impartial, apolitical, un you know, a uh, person who has had no relevant life experience that we like specifically. They just like wrote for Harvard Law Review and worked at the biggest, fanciest firm right. and then worked at some judge po- position on some bench. And then they got ascended to appellate and therefore they're even closer to the Supreme Court. That is this weird so ladder that we constructed. You're kind of going with the wise Latina approach. I, I'm going with the I want people who will make good decisions. And the idea that they're part of the legal establishment actually cuts against them. I think that is a huge negative. I think the idea that, that the members of the legal establishment, by virtue of their having gone 
gone to Harvard or Yale right. and then having clerked for a Supreme Court justice on a state Supreme Court or a federal Supreme Court and then having been on the federal bench and then being on the appellate bench and then going to the uh, state Supreme Court and then going to the California uh, to well, the US see, Supreme Court. All those are negatives. But everyone I, I says your this person is more bought into the system of the status quo and less I, uh, in touch with the attributes of a real human being. That I hear you, affect. but I can't believe the governor's attitude is I'm with Connor in terms of the ideological spectrum. I'm, I'm with him, you know, to this point, degree yeah. on the left. I think instead he just wanted to check the boxes because he's running for president and he wants to make people happy who were his part of his his base. And, and but again, here we go back at looking at George Bush's brain. George W. Bush's brain is irrelevant, whether it existed or it was in Karl Rove's head or whether he had all the best intentions or whether he literally was just like, I think Harry Meyer is the person, the lawyer that I trust the most. And therefore, I can keep under my thumb. I don't care. Right. It doesn't matter what why he did that. What matters is the outcome. Is it a good thing? Does it matter why Gavin Newsom uh, appointed this woman because he thinks it's the best uh, candidate for making the world a better place or because he wants to be president? If you go down that road, you've deluded well, I think it, yourself I think into it matters. that you can change what's inside his brain. That you can, you, can dis- you can pick a leader who will make the best decisions because he has the best motivations in addition to making the best decisions. Well, I think no. it matters because pick it's always interesting uh, from just a political standpoint and sure. a human nature sure. standpoint. Well, that's certainly if true. people are running the show like our president or governor, yeah. I'm curious. You know, I, so I mean, I'm curious what too. Their, what their motivation sure. is. But you know, from your perspective, I see where you know your goal is yeah. to move the ideological needle. Yeah. But I, you know, there are a lot of people to the right of you on the ideological. I don't spectrum. think there are. I don't know if that makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> There's one or two. Hey, when we come back, uh, we are going to talk about the fact that uh, statutes of limitations are getting eased uh, for sex offenses. Is that a Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Good idea or not, stick with us. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Roy Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So should we dump statutes of limitations for sex offenses? Uh, we are uh, looking into the issue here in California. Just adopted AB 218. Uh, it's opening a three-year window for child sex assault survivors to sue their abusers. Uh, the uh, It is sex assault claims uh, uh, that had exceeded the statute of limitations are now being approved. So this is a so-called look-back window. It started uh, January 2020, and it's coming to an end. And at the end of 2022. And so now we're going to have uh, some additional time. So previously, if you were ju- abused as a child, you had eight years after you turned 18 or age 26 to sue. Or if you had a recovered memory situation, you can sue within three years of the recovered memory. And you have a shrink sign something saying, hey, I've talked to this person. They're not faking. They really did recover it. So this new law is increasing that time limit from eight years after age 18 to 22 years, 22 years after age 18 or age 40. And the recovered memory time is now being extended from three years to five years. So basically, if you're under 40, there is no statute of limitations. If you're over 40, you can 
instead of the shrink says you recovered uh, the memory after 40 and then sued within five years. Plus, they had treble damages. And the result is because we've got a deadline coming up um, at the end of 2022. Over 800 suits have been filed recently against the Boy Scouts and the, the Boys and Girls Clubs and the Catholic Church. Uh, they've been facing about 750 suits uh, in the last couple of years against the various uh, dioceses. Uh, the Catholic Church wants the Supreme Court to say this window extension is unconstitutional, but a bunch of courts have, have approved it. Um, so I, I, you know, I get it. Child abuse is the worst of the worst. But some use this issue to kind of question statutes of limitations in general. Yeah. What is the point? What are we doing? Why do we have these, yeah. et cetera? And, that's and, and, a, and it's certainly a deeply ingrained uh, element of our legal system. If you try to sue after five or 10 or 100 years, people are going to say, oh, is it fair to the defendant? Can, uh, can they prove their alibi? Right. You know, what about witnesses? Memories fading. Documents are gone. So, you know, there's a rationale for statutes of limitation. I don't think we're, we're about to throw them overboard, but I wonder if this is kind of the camel's nose under the tent yeah. to get people thinking that, well, maybe these are unfair. Let the judge and jury decide uh, yeah. if, if the claim is valid or not. Or, yeah, and on the other hand, you have the 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 individuals who are out there saying, the, the mostly conservatives probably, who are saying, um, look, these look like individually crafted laws to to help facilitate and enable these sex abuse cases, right. these specific uh, you know, Catholic diocese cases and these these uh, scouts. lawyer, full employment act. Right. Scouts cases and all this stuff. So I, I get I understand that conservative perspective where they say, hey, this looks like it's so specifically crafted. But at the same time, it, it's also something where every time you have a major issue come up in politics and law in public and it, it rises to the top, that's when you get laws that change it, right? That brings to the attention of lawmakers and the public, hey, the idea that somebody who now, because the political climate has changed, because the world is different, because society is more understanding of, of and, and, and pro-victim, comes forward and says, yeah, I was abused as a kid, but I wasn't about to in 1980 or whatever. I wasn't about to you know bring a, a, a lawsuit about it, but I will now because I want to make the world a better place or whatever. And, and so I can see both sides of that. Big picture, broadly, I think it is important to recognize that sex abuse of minors, well, just sex abuse, pure period, but most importantly of minors, is a special case that doesn't just need a... Um, uh, a different statute of limitations with special exceptions for, you know, recovered memories and all that because it's bad, right? It's not just that uh, that sex abuse is bad in the same way that we have a statute. We have no statute of limitations for murder, right, um, in criminal court because murder is the worst, right? We went super duper bad. And because it's so bad, we don't we say it doesn't matter. Um, you can get it doesn't matter if you get away with it for 30 years or 50 years or 70 years or 100 years. We will get you at year 101 right. because murder is the worst. This is civil court. It's a little different. And it's not that we're saying sex abuse is bad, although that's, of course, a part of it. It's that why would we have the special exceptions and all this? Because sex abuse is difficult to understand when you are the victim of it, when you are a child, that it can be repressed and then the memories be recovered, that it's a it's a whole different animal from other you know, crimes where the evidence might well be, uh, you know, caught on security camera at the bank, uh, as opposed to something that, you know, by its nature, very often happens uh, behind closed doors. And in uh, in settings where there's an empower, uh, there's a power imbalance and an age imbalance and a knowledge imbalance, and it's, you know, confusing and, uh, and, and needs years to maybe of therapy, maybe to come to the surface. So 
that I think is a really good reason to be changing uh, these laws. And I think the overall changing of society leading to people uh, being more understanding and victim focused is another good mark in that column. Not to say there are no marks in the other column of we need to, you know, uh, uh, prevent people from bringing frivolous claims or whatever. Of course, that's a major factor too. We want to, we, 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 we do want uh, defendants to be able to defend themselves. But when society has changed so quickly and so rapidly, and our laws happen to be that the statutes of limitations would cut off recovery for victims who are now coming forward in a new and different and changed society and bringing claims that they couldn't bring, not just because of a statute of limitations, not just because of, you know, time and effort uh, to bring a a lawsuit, but because there were structural reasons in our society why you couldn't bring these claims, why people wouldn't listen to you, they wouldn't believe you, they would tear your life apart, they would accuse you, they would victim blame, they, you know, uh, he's no angel or she's no angel you, they would, you know, slut shame you, they would do whatever, then ruin your life because you brought this claim at all. And now maybe a society is different. Maybe that isn't going to happen as much. And because of that, I think the law should change. I hear you. You make a good point, especially, you know, on the analogy to murder. I mean, uh, you know, that acknowledges that we do make exceptions. I, and I, I don't think that the, the camel's nose is going to tear down the tent. I, I think this system is still going to stick with the statutes of limitations, but it's a little troublesome to see it getting chipped away because, you know, if you, if you allow one exception, then another and another, when in fact, I think there's a very solid basis uh, for having statutes of limitations. It, it puts uh, people who are accused either by the state or a plaintiff uh, improperly uh, yeah. in a bind, yeah. you know, if you've got a really emotional type situation. And speaking and of- I, as a filthy uh, uh, progressive, would agree with you. I mean, I look at this, the, the criminal side, and I would say that the power of law enforcement to dredge up allegations from a really long time ago and then go forward on really thin evidence and simply say, I'm the cops, you got to believe me. I'm a prosecutor, you got to believe me. Uh, and, you know, word against word, criminal defendants get railroaded in those sorts of situations all the time, and statutes of limitations protect them. It allows people to put things to bed and say, you know, that issue, that thing that happened uh, in, in the past, uh, I'm moving past it. Uh, and, you know, we, we all kind of recognize we're a different person every five or 10 years. Um, and, and statute of limitations, I think, importantly reflect that. Now, that's different than criminal criminal versus civil. There's a big difference, right? Like if they if they did really just say there are no statute of limitations in one of the two courts, it should obviously be, be civil because the stakes are really low uh, compared to being incarcerated for the rest of your life. Uh, and therefore, it, it, it's OK to have no SOLs there, statutes of limitations, SOLs. I, I, I'm not uh, arguing for that at this point, but but if you had to pick one, we had to pick one. But because of the analogy to criminal court, I, the filthy progressive, absolutely <laughs> understand where you're coming from. I totally get it. There is value in putting things to bed. So let's talk Vanessa Bryant, uh, our final big topic, uh, $31 million verdict. She gets 16. Uh, Mr. Chester, her co-plaintiff, got $15 million from the jury in downtown Remind me uh, who the heck court. Mr. Chester is, because I, yeah, as a he random lost, viewer, I also have no yeah, idea who that is. He uh, lost his wife and daughter in the same helicopter mm, crash see, along with So Kobe they brought Ryan. the claim together. Exactly yeah. right. They were co-plaintiffs, and in addition to that, there were a few other families who sued for emotional uh, distress concerning uh, the distribution of photographs. That's yeah. what the case was about. Sheriff's department folks and some fire captain, fire department people uh, took photos on their personal um, uh, devices. They, it really wasn't their job to be taking crash site photos. So for emotional distress and uh, deprivation of a constitutional right of privacy, that's how the federal issue uh, landed it in federal court. Uh, the uh, these folks uh, convinced the jury to uh, to pay fairly big bucks, and I wanted it. That's what I wanted to get your take on, Connor. The, 
the plaintiff's lawyer in the final argument asked for $75 million. He had some formula about $1 yeah. million a year for emotional distress. Plaintiff's lawyers love future. to put formulas on a whiteboard or projector uh, in their closing arguments and start adding up numbers until they get to an ungodly large sum. And it was interesting. Uh, the plaintiff's lawyer for Mr. Chester went through the numbers. Mm. The lawyer from Wilson Sonsini, Louis Lee, I think it was his name, a uh, representative Vanessa Bryant, he chose not to ask the jury about for a specific amount. He mm. just said, you know, you do what you think is best. He also got really emotional. His yeah. voice broke. I was in the courtroom for his for the final arguments and for some of Vanessa's testimony and a few days testimony. And when he was talking at the very end of his final argument, he had the, the final rebuttal for plaintiff. You know, he was starting to lose it. And a juror started to sob quietly. A couple of people around me are, are, are crying in Emotion, the gallery. Sure. Yeah, I had to kind of slap them away because they were getting in the way of taking my taking notes. Oh my God. No, I made that part of <laughs> But anyway, uh, he did a good job kind of getting them going. But they didn't go for $75 million, no, $100 million. Yeah. And I'm, you know, we, I don't think the jurors have talked much. One option would be that they figured, well, why should we take tax dollars, you know, out of our own collective pockets and give yeah. it to a couple of people who are already very wealthy. Yeah. But they went for the 30, $31 million. They did not go for the $75 million. I think the, the difficulty the county had was their theme was, hey, this is a... a a case about pictures with no pictures because the photos have not shown up on the internet. Right. They were deleted from a bunch of devices. There's a hard drive that went missing and the fire captain had to admit that they didn't really look hard to find it. There's an allegation of a cover up because the, the sheriff allegedly told people to delete stuff from their phones, which on the one hand sounds like, damn it, you shouldn't have done it. Take it off your phone. On the yeah. other hand, it's like a destroying evidence. Yeah. It's a, like a cover up. Yeah. So I think that's probably what uh, what got the jury pretty angry. From your perspective, you probably didn't follow it quite as closely as I did because I, I, I was in the courtroom for a while. Yeah. Were you surprised? It'd be hard to follow that closely. Yeah. Were you surprised by by the $31 million? I, for, I a was. lot of people I talked to said, what the hell? These people, all the millions and millions of dollars, you know, this yeah. is crazy. Fire the guys, slap them down, but don't yeah. make the county pay. Right. I mean, the the... They're absolutely right that in all of these situations where uh, cops on duty, cops, especially firefighters, whatever, usually cops, but you know, fewer, fewer situations of misconduct by firefighters, uh, usually uh, in these situations, the county has liability insurance or out of the co county's coffers uh, comes this money. It's not like that cop is going to have to pay that money back. And people think of jury verdicts as a combination of one, we want to make that person pay the money back. And we also want this person to be made whole. And so in a situation like this, no matter, especially when the, the, the plaintiff has so much money already, someone like Vanessa Bryant and another rich person who had you know family members on this private helicopter, um, they, they think of it as well, where's the money going? Okay. It's going to people who don't need it and won't have their lives changed by it. Yeah. But and guess what? Coming, where's it? A little fa fun fact, Vanessa is giving all of her money to some charity. That, I mean, well, she's probably yeah, worth a billion yeah, dollars. Yeah, so yeah. $16 million, yeah, I mean, it's irrelevant. Yeah, 16 yeah. is irrelevant. But yeah. so in, in case the jury learned about that, yeah. it'd be a little sneaky. That would be pretty sneaky, yeah. Where's the money coming from and where's the money going to? And if the money's not going to somebody who needs it and his life is going to be improved dramatically and they think, oh, we can make this up, we can make this right. Well, can you make Kobe Bryant's right, death right? No, obviously. Can you make the, her daughter's life death right? No, obviously. Okay, and then where's the money coming from? Well, it's coming from the county of Los Angeles. Is that going to change the way the county works and operates? That is, I think, how jurors think. Are they thinking, is this going to stop the next one? Is this going to happen send a message. again? Is this going to send a message? And that, I think, 
ends up with a, a big, you know, tens of millions of dollars, such an unfathomably large number that people can't even sort of wrap their heads around it. Um, but I guess 75 was too much. When I, you know, predicted uh, two weeks ago, my my number, I said uh, it was going to be, a, you know, 100 million bucks or whatever. I kind of, I think, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I, I think I pretty much nailed how the lawyers think and right. how where the lawyer came down and what they were mm-hmm. going to argue for. But uh, but I was a little high on uh, where the, the jurors came down, maybe two or three two or three times off. Well, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really difficult thing to estimate because you never know what your jury pool is going to be like. I think that this is a fair... Uh, outcome. I don't. I don't think that this is excessive. I don't think this is ridiculous. I think that that this is a number that the the jurors probably thought would make the world a better place and change the way that cops and firefighters in the county of LA operate and treat you know human remains. Um, specifically, it's going to be above you know famous people. But at the same time, you know, obviously people want to pass pictures around of corpses uh, of celebrities, but also of regular people, and you never hear about that. And you got to have somebody who has the power to look at. Uh, human remains and take photos of human remains to be quaking in their boots at the enormity of the power that has been handed to them, the the the, the, the license uh, with which they could do wrong that they have been given. I think that is something that people should be afraid of. And a number in 2022, like $30 million, I think does make somebody quake in their boots uh, at a time, you know, when uh, 100,000 or a million or 5 million probably wouldn't. It's uh, This is another example, I think, of the cover-up being uh, worse than the crime, uh, which everybody learned about during the Watergate situation. Uh, here you have these guys taking the pictures and you know, showing them to a bartender right. and showing them around at a, the golden mics put on by the Radio and TV News Association of Southern yeah. California. They have a cocktail party before the actual event, and he's at the cocktail party showing this stuff to Ugh. reporters, public information officers, Ugh. and so on. So I, I think the cover-up angle is this. When the sheriff's department and the fire department first heard about this, they should have had an immediate investigation, yeah. should have condemned this immediately, right. should yeah. have been upfront about it. Instead, yeah. they lied about it. Yeah. The LA Times asked them if there had been a complaint because mm-hmm. the bartender submitted a complaint to the sheriff's department and a widow of a fire guy submitted a complaint to the fire department because these two people learned about these photos being passed around like yeah. this. And that's, you know, it, it, then it began. didn't become public. Yeah. So And the cover up is is worse than the crime here because obviously this, this, it's a question of do the bad apples spoil the bunch or is the bunch bad like that that's the issue is la county fire is la lapd is the county of los angeles full of people who do the right thing and will do their best to do the right thing is law enforcement right. rotten to the core or and even if you have some bad apples the bosses should make it clear that right. they were bad yeah. apples but as in many of these situations we see that the rest of them cover for the bad apples meaning right. it's all bad apples. It's bad apples all the way down. And that's the problem. That's where we see, oh, the, oh no, the cover-up was worse than the crime because it means that the ones we thought were okay are covering for the bad guys. So there are no okay ones. From a trial lawyer's perspective, I was just stunned at the learning about deposition testimony by one of the deputies. I, yeah. I don't remember his name. He, it might have been Deputy Johnson. But Johnson's a generic enough name. Mm-hmm. We'll just call him Johnson. Just like Christ Johnson, the pilot. Not Christ Johnson. No. So um, this guy uh, shared some of the photos. And when he shared them, the guy he shared them with shared them with somebody else. And that comes into evidence. During the deposition of the guy who initially shared them, he was asked, well, now that you know what happened and how they got shared and so on, 
uh, you've said you think you were doing the right thing, taking the pictures because your understanding was you're a deputy, you're on the scene, this is a terrible crash, you've got to document the scene, maybe the NTB and a TSB will want to see it. Now that you know what happened, though, would, would, you know, would you do it over uh, the same way again? And he said, yeah. I do it the same way again. Now, that is a horrible position to take because that's yeah. bound to infuriate the jury. Yeah. He's got absolutely no remorse. He's asked, if you knew yeah. this thing would go south in a horrible way, would yeah. you do it? Yes, I'd do it. That kind of you know inflexible, brittle attitude. Yeah. I mean, you can maybe try to explain and say, well, my answer would be, yeah. I, I, I still think that I did the right thing right. I mean, uh, because it was my job. But now yeah. that I know these this awful violation of privacy occurred, right. I would never do it. No, I wouldn't do it if I had known it would, you know, if there would yeah. be a car accident, I wouldn't start the Mercedes. Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of the thing. It's like it, it, a, a lawyer, if a lawyer had answered that question, they would have refused to answer this bizarre hypothetical uh, that they're being asked. And their lawyer should have objected to this question and prevented them from answering it because- yeah, Oftentimes, though, you, you, have, you do have to answer answer hypothetical questions. Uh, experts have to answer hypothetical questions because experts can entertain hypothetical right. situations and use their expertise. But uh, a lay witness should be very wary in a deposition of any hypothetical because the correct answer to that question is, well, OK, you're asking me if, if I'm a fireman who ran over somebody on the way to a fire and you say, well, would you have started your uh, your your uh, uh, fire truck that morning if you knew you were going to run over a child? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, Obviously, I would not have done, taken the actions that led directly to the death of, of the child that I ran over. Mm -hmm. But you're asking me a, a hypothetical that is impossible, as though I could see the future. And if even if I do what I believe is right, bad outcomes will come from it. Well, I guess I'll just lie in bed every morning and not get up and do my job as a firefighter because something might go wrong along the way. And therefore, people will burn up in a fire. It, it, is that the hypothetical you're asking me? It's an impossible and answerable question. But he wasn't a lawyer. He didn't understand the danger of hypothetical questions. The preparation process, uh, I think, was a little flawed. Yeah, because it could have been bad. Uh, yeah. Well, be who prepped. knows? Prep your client for uh, I've had experiences where, um, my gosh, the preparation went fabulously. Yeah. And this witness, I it was going to be witness of the year. I yeah. am totally confident. And the wheels completely oh, come no. off. And inexplicably, yeah. I couldn't explain it. You couldn't explain it. Inexplicably, no. they did a horrible job. Similarly, I'm, you've probably had the same situation. We've all been there where you you prepare and you prepare and... It, you just are so worried it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. You know, they're trying, but they're just not getting. And then they are fantastic. Yeah. So you never know what's going to happen. A but diamond some, under pressure. Yeah. Something went wrong. But I, and I have to I have to say, I've run into judges who were fine with letting uh, lay witnesses answer hypothetical questions because, you know, a lot of plaintiff's lawyers will say, oh, that's irrelevant. You know, you that's got nothing to do. Well, relevancy isn't a proper right. objection in no, a deposition. You know, if you're asking for somebody's social security number, and there's absolutely, you know, there are privacy issues. But in general, you know, you give them pretty wide latitude to yeah, poke around and, and get a, a witness's perspective. And yeah, this question should have been anticipated and it wasn't answered very well. Hey, we've got time for Guess the Verdict. Connor, are you psyched yes. up for this? I'm always psyched. So this is America's favorite game show. I give Connor the facts of a case. He gets to guess the outcome. And if he uh, if he gets it right, his batting average goes up and he gets a really annoying bell dinging. Here. We got a huge chalkboard here and we mark off all my positives and negatives. And I, I, it turns out over the uh, several hundred we've done, I've uh, never missed one. Well, I, I'm not sure that's right. I've never missed one. But uh, we'll see how you do on this one. Okay. Her name is Carolyn Sparks, Connor. Okay. She's this is a good start for the topless uh, lawn raker. She's 48 years old. Okay. She lives in Brooksville, Florida. Nice. She is arrested for raking 
the leaves topless in her front yard. Very Florida. She goes on trial mm -hmm. for charges of disorderly conduct. Nice. I don't know if public nudity, uh, if they've got a, such a statute, is probably a subset of disorderly conduct. I don't think in Florida that there are any laws against it. I think it's encouraged. I think the judges on the stand are nude. I don't know. I, I, I never... I hardly ever go to Florida. So what's your prediction? How does this woman, Carolyn Sparks, age 48, topless raker, how does she do? I think she's making a women's liberation statement. I think she's saying, sure, sure, I've got my bottoms on. We're all on the same page there. But <laughs> men can go page. out there and sweatily rake the leaves. I don't think I want to read that page. All they want. Know? No. Probably not. Yeah, oh, a lot of women are very right? ticked off. They go Absolutely. to the beach and the guys are running around. Yeah. And you don't want to see them, their, but they're running around anyway. They got their man boobs. They're male presenting nipples. But the women are forced to just cover up like crazy down yeah. at the beach. It's like, it's like uh, you know, it's unfair. It's it's sexist. It's it's some sort of religious law. Yeah, but, okay, but the law is the law. So what, uh, what do you think happened uh, with the case of Carolyn Sparks? Do you remember the controversy when Tumblr was bought by... By a new corporation. Tumblr was a popular social media site where you people reblogged other people's content and stole it, but that's okay. Uh, why did they call media. it Tumblr? T-U-M-B-L-R. Uh, yeah, Who knows? Why they, that was just yeah, the... Because you kind of Tumblr, I knew how to spell it. I just well, didn't no, know where the hell they came up with no the name. E. There's no E. It's, oh, I know that. Yeah, I've seen it. Oh, yeah. wow. I'm, I'm so savvy. I'm, I'm hip enough to have seen it. Yeah, so Tumblr uh, put in this ban on, on, on sexual content, uh, and specifically, they had to wrestle, uh, and it was insane, and it totally killed the whole site because the only reason anyone used Tumblr at that point in like 2019 was for pornography. Uh, everybody moved on to Facebook. Yeah, uh, a bad business model. It was a horrible business model. No sexual content. And it literally was like 150 in Playboy million. magazine. It was millions of dollars uh, oh, in, really? it, when they bought the, the thing and they sold it for like 3 million bucks later. It was like they lost like $147 million on the value of this thing because they, they got rid of all the pornography. So they had to wrestle with what is it, what is okay and what is not okay and they decided, well, okay, the, our rules for moderation are going to say you are allowed to post male presenting nipples but not female presenting nipples okay and everyone had no idea what that means now they didn't say breasts or people with these things they just said the nipple so you people were posting pictures of just the zoomed in just a nipple really saying is this a male or a female presenting nipple and then they would they would cut and paste they they'd, they'd take a topless uh a uh, woman and a topless man, and they transposed just their nipples onto each other. So the man had male presenting, uh, had female presenting nipples, and the woman had male presenting nipples, and they were both totally nude up top. And they say, boom, there we are. So if this topless uh, rake, uh, leaf raker mm -hmm. is out there, she just has to wear pasties with male presenting nipple pictures on them. Well, that's good legal advice boom, for her, she gets but she didn't. So Okay, I'm dodging you, the question. I'm, I'm just saying, it seems like you're kind of putting off the final answer for Regis Philbin here. I think, I think she goes... rest in peace. I think she goes down in flames, unfortunately, disorderly conduct, because uh, we live in this puritanical, uh, you know, uh, fascist state that crushes poor uh, uh, the feminists out there who want to uh, have, you know, their leaf-raking events. Sorry, she was found not guilty. What? Yeah, I think I suspect jury nullification exactly yeah. right. I probably yeah. a bunch of teenage boys yeah, yeah, yeah. were on the uh, on the jury. I'm sorry, we, uh, we, we 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 when we were impaneling the jury to convict Stacy's mom, unfortunately, we we impaneled the entire uh, Fountains of Wayne. That's the band that sang this, the song Stacy's mom, um, uh, <laughs> who famously uh, lay out by the pool while so, he mowed. So last uh, week we talked about death qualification.
qualified jurors mm-hmm. yes. in capital punishment cases and the, the big debate over whether the judge should uh, ask every single prospective juror in a capital punishment case, look, uh, you have some kind of moral objection to capital punishment because it's the law. And if the facts indicate that you should vote uh, guilty and send yeah. this guy to the de- gas chamber, we have to know that you'll really do it. And yeah. people say yes or no, or I don't know. And, and they're chosen based on that. So I'm thinking maybe nude qualified nude jurors. Nude qualified. Absolutely. The problem is this just gets into a whole jury nullification rabbit hole. Anytime the judge asks the jury, are you okay with, uh, you know, uh, with, with uh, the law as it stands, you're just weeding out all the people who have objections to society, which means progressives, people want to change mm-hmm. things, right? So you're going to end up with only the most I got no problem with that. conservative jurors who say, yes, there's nothing bad about society. I don't want to change anything. I don't see any problems with our laws. Cops are the greatest. I'd love to lick a boot. Where is one, please? They're so delicious, right? That's the problem with qualifying anybody for death qualified jury. So you're saying or, if you were king, you would make sure that uh, jurors uh, are only If I were king, I would guillotine myself because I'm so progressive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to be thinking about that uh, for the next week. And meantime, uh, you have a wonderful week. Stay cool, which could be very difficult. And we'll see you next time on Too Many Lawyers. <laughs>